Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 26th, 2019. I am Brian Cardile. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, focusing on major appellate and constitutional law cases and questions. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court issued opinions in two Ninth Circuit appeals. One was just a sentence long, was a procurium dismissal of a closely watched securities case that the court decided had been improvidently granted review. Though lacking in words, the ruling does entail some pretty substantial ramifications, and it leaves unresolved, at least for another term, a circuit split that the Ninth Circuit's decision created, and one that some court watchers in the securities field believe has subjected corporate defendants to a flood of shareholder suits that unduly complicate company mergers. On today's show, we'll primarily be spinning out that one-sentence opinion, which came in an appeal captioned Emulex v. Marjabedian. I'll be joined just a bit later by two securities experts from O'Melveny and Myers Los Angeles office, Matthew Close, a partner there, and Brittany Rogers, counsel for the firm. First, though, we'll touch on the other lengthier and much more fractured SCOTUS treatment of a Ninth Circuit arbitration decision. It's a reversal of the circuit's decision that had construed an ambiguous arbitration clause in favor of a group of 1,300 employees seeking class arbitration against their employer, which had accidentally let slip into hackers' hands sensitive information pertaining to the workers. A clause in the employment contract between the parties was clear enough that disputes between them were to be hashed out in an arbitral forum, but the contract was ambiguous as to whether class arbitration was a mutually acceptable procedure. The Ninth Circuit, citing California contract law principles, held that where arbitration clauses are unclear, the benefit of the doubt should go to the employees, who had no hand in drafting the unclear language. But the court's five conservative justices felt that such a result was unfair to the company here, which they said could not be seen as having clearly consented to class arbitration, and so, based on the principles of consent and of efficiency and simplicity underlying the Federal Arbitration Act, should not be forced to resolve claims like this one in such a manner. The battle over arbitration is, of course, one court watchers have seen unfold for several terms now, this being just the latest skirmish, but it included perhaps the most pointed barbs from the four dissenting justices who each wrote separately, including Justice Ginsburg, who said the FAA's broad modern application reaches beyond the act's original purposes. She exhorted Congress that urgent corrective action was needed. Here now to talk through this ruling and its implications a bit further, I'm glad to welcome Ron Holland. He's a partner with McDermott, Will, and Emery in San Francisco. He defends employer clients in a wide range of labor and employment matters. Ron, thanks for joining me. Uh, thanks, Brian. Okay, so I think folks are getting somewhat used to this routine. We have another Supreme Court term and another uh, split decision construing an arbitration contract in favor of an employer defendant against uh, four fairly vociferous dissents from the uh, more liberal justices here. Here, it seemed like there was maybe more reason than in some of the other previous arbitration cases to think the Supreme Court might affirm the Ninth Circuit's uh, construal of this contract in favor of the employees. Here you had arbitration contract, the court stipulated that was ambiguous as to whether or not the employees could band together and bring a class arbitration suit. And so, as the Ninth Circuit said, the state contract principle in California that takes ambiguous contracts and construes them you know, against the drafting party, the party that sort of had the control, the opportunity to draft a clear contract against class arbitration if it really wanted to. But the Supreme Court does not follow the Ninth Circuit's ruling. It, it, it sort of disturbs the, or it says the, you know, the, the reasoning basing the decision on California state contract law is not sufficient. Uh, why, in uh, Chief Justice John Roberts' view, was that the case? I, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, I think, just followed uh, the prior dis- court's decision in Stolt-Nielsen. 
you know, Stolt-Nielsen, the court held that silence was insufficient to trigger class uh, arbitration. Uh, here, the the court simply went to the next step and and determined that in- ambiguity was insufficient as well. The Ninth Circuit reasoning applying state contract principles certainly is consistent with the FAA saving clause and the prior cases that would say look to state common law, state contract law in determining or interpreting an arbitration agreement. Here, however, the Chief Justice or the court majority determined that in some cases looking to state contract law needs to take a back seat to federal preemption or, or the overriding purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act. And that's essentially what the court concluded uh, here in a 5-4 majority. Could you maybe just unpack that a, a tiny bit further in terms of what the, the FAA savings clause is meant to provide for? So is that you know one of the essential reasons for its existence, that if there are maybe state contract law reasons to, you know, uh, construe a contract a certain way that the FAA yields to it. What what else is sort of entailed there? Well, I mean, arbitration agreements are simply contracts. And because we don't really have a body of federal contract law or federal common law to apply to the interpretation of contracts, normally what would happen under the FAA if there, were, if there was any uh, ambiguity in a contract, we would apply state contract law principles. And so the Ninth Circuit's decision essentially said, we have an ambiguity here. We're going to construe that ambiguity against the drafter, which was the company, Lamps Plus. State California contract law in that regard is no different than, I would say, if not all of the states, uh, certainly a substantial majority of them. However, in the court's opinion, four of the five justices, at least, uh, Justice Thomas concurring, uh, determined or followed the chief's lead that the FAA Public, the public policy behind the FAA of preferring arbitration when the parties have agreed to arbitrate took precedence over uh, state contract law and, that, and the application of state contract law. But, you know, the interesting twist here is that in either circumstance, whether the Ninth Circuit is affirmed or reversed, the case is going to arbitration. It's just a matter of whether it's class arbitration or you know several many thousands, perhaps, individual arbitrations, you know, the public policy reasoning behind the FAA, which, as you say, the Chief Justice cited one of those policy bases being arbitration is efficient. It gets you out of, you know, the federal or state court system and uh, lets you resolve these matters for, you know, less money and in in a quicker span of time. You know, I confess I wasn't terribly persuaded by that reasoning because here you have 1,300 employees that are trying to band together to bring one class arbitration, but the majority is saying, no, individual arbitration is more efficient. But if you break up those 1,300 employees and each one has to file an individual arbitration case, that doesn't seem as efficient as just knocking them all out in one go. So, you know, if if efficiency is one of the core arguments here in the majority, why doesn't that recommend class arbitration? Well, I, I, I do understand. Justice, uh, the, the, I, I continue to say Justice Roberts, he, he wrote for the court. Uh, the majority essentially looked uh, to the, some of the historical purposes of the, of the FAA as far as arbitration is concerned. Uh, speed, uh, informality, uh, simplicity, reduced expense, and relying on those factors and the concept that at the time the FAA was enacted, 
it was enacted with the idea of or focused on individual arbitrations and not multiple plaintiffs or class action arbitrations, relying on uh, those factors determined that the complexity of the class action with its class discovery, its class certification process, um, and the expense of proceeding in a class uh, action and the def- you know expense for the plaintiff in the defense uh, was inconsistent with the purposes of the of the Federal Arbitration Act. And so I do understand that certainly, certainly you know Justice Ginsburg uh, disagrees and, and vehemently disagrees in her dissent and takes the court to uh, to task not only. Uh, on the issue of expediency, but also as far as the inequality of bargaining power and loops back to the court's holding that arbitration is a matter of consent. Justice Ginsburg seems to scoff at that idea and suggest that, of course, there's no, uh, this is um, a Hobson's choice for employees. This isn't consent. This is you may have a job if you agree to the terms or you can't. Uh, but that's that's certainly consistent with Justice Ginsburg's themes of inequality in her employment decisions, civil rights decisions, and then more specifically in arbitration decisions. Yeah, I just wanted to spin that out a, a tiny bit further. The chief is clearly very solicitous and concerned about making sure that the you know employer defendant here definitely consented to class arbitration. So as he said in the precedent that was on the books, the Stolt-Nielsen case, the court had held, you know, if the agreement doesn't reference class arbitration, we're going to assume that, you know, consent on the part of the employer defendant was not given and it's not permissible here. The contract's ambiguous. It's not clear the defendant consented. But as you say, Justice Ginsburg says, you know, <laughs> what about the consent of the employees here when they signed the, the agreement? Of course, as you say, you know, most employees that are hiring on to a, the Lamps Plus store, these, you know, Lamps Plus store here in California aren't, you know, they don't have attorneys on retainer to give Lamps Plus a call and, you know, negotiate that term of the contract. So it really seems like the court cares a lot more about the consent of the defendant here. What are your thoughts on, on that point? Uh, I, w- I would disagree. You know, there are a variety of conditions that employees consent to when they apply for and accept a job. They consent to rules of the workplace. They consent to a disciplinary process. They consent to the types of benefits uh, they will uh, receive. And so consenting to arbitrate disputes is no different than the other conditions of employment that employees uh, consent to uh, all across the country. The issue for Justice Ginsburg is Nobody disputes that there was an agreement to arbitrate. The employees agreed. The court notes that the employee agreed. Justice Ginsburg doesn't argue that they didn't agree. She more argues that they couldn't agree. And they couldn't agree because of Justice Ginsburg's belief that there's an imbalance of power between employees and their employer that prevent them from consenting to arbitration. That's certainly a a theory that the court disagrees with, and uh, as an employment lawyer, I certainly disagree with. Is there anything else that's worth uh, worth unpacking from the four different dissents? I noted one argument that was raised that I've certainly seen before about the original purpose of the FAA as just a good non-judicial forum or quasi-judicial forum, but outside of the confines of government courts for 
equally matched parties to hash out their disputes, and maybe the FAA wasn't intended for disputes such as these, where the you know the power on different sides of the dispute is is pretty Im- imbalanced. Either any thoughts on on that argument or anything else raised in, in the dissents? I don't know that I uh, have any thoughts on uh, that particular issue. I, I I do find it noteworthy that while there is a majority of five justices, Justice Thomas writes a concurring opinion, joins with the majority, but he wouldn't necessarily go, fa- go as far as the rest of the court with regard to the disregarding of the state law of interpreting contracts against the drafter, nor could he, uh, as Justice Kagan points out in her dissent in a footnote that uh, Justice Thomas has, uh, has, has wrangled with this preemption issue before, that is preemption of state common law or state contract law principles in favor of, of federal law. And so I do find it interesting that Justice Thomas's unwillingness to go that far seems actually in line with some of the points where, that Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan raised with regard to the preemption of state law. I, do, um, I, I find that, that symmetry of Thomas's concurrence actually being consistent with a couple of the more liberal dissents to be very interesting. Uh, there's also uh, Justice Ginsburg's call out at the end of her uh, dissent, which was, you know, which was beautifully written, as was the chief's majority opinion. But there's a call out for congressional action here to combat some of the court's decisions, arbitration decisions. That's not something that you usually see is a call out by one of the justices of, uh, for congressional action in this regard. In addition, she sort of gives a shout out to, <laughs> to tech companies in Silicon Valley and states who are uh, getting out in front of this issue, seeing the wave of uh, arbitration decisions and carving out on their own, either states legislatively or uh, companies uh, privately carving out certain uh, types of claims, like sex harassment claims, from their or from their mandatory arbitration provisions. I do find that to be an an interesting uh, result of of the prior decisions, and also an interesting call out on Justice Ginsburg's dissent. Okay, just one last one. Could you help uh, frame for me, I guess, how consequential this particular decision is? We've gotten we've gotten lots of decisions in the arbitration context down from the high court. You know, it strikes me that this one, of course, only applies to contracts, I guess, suppose that are ambiguous about whether class arbitration is permissible. I imagine there's many employment contracts written that you know explicitly say class arbitration is is not you know part of the the deal. So I guess how many contracts could this potentially have an impact? on um, and now is the only possibility for a collective arbitration action in circumstances where the the contract clearly stipulates it? I don't know that it has consequences for employment agreements as a whole. It certainly has the potential for more far-reaching consequences on arbitration provisions and arbitration agreements in that the court has shown or has concluded that the purposes of the Federal Arbor Arbitration Act may, under the right circumstances, trump the application of state contract law that would be inconsistent with those purposes. And 
So I, I do see that we're going to see this unfold a little bit in the lower federal courts, in the district court, in the courts of appeal, uh, as the decision is apl- applied and interpreted. Well, we'll stay tuned for that, but we're going to leave it there for now. Uh, Ron Holland, partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery in San Francisco. Thanks very much for being on our show. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Brian. Last year, the Ninth Circuit decided that shareholders bringing a Securities Exchange Act claim in the context of a corporate merger could prevail if they proved just that a defendant had been negligent in either misleading them or keeping important information from them pertaining to an acquiring company's tender offer. That put the Ninth Circuit alone. Among six circuits to have considered the question, the five others demanded a bit more of shareholder plaintiffs requiring they show the defendant had some intent to mislead. Swiftly, the Supreme Court stepped in to grant cert, and many predicted stood poised to reverse the Ninth Circuit and vindicate the heightened intent standard that had prevailed in other federal circuits, but the appeal deviated from that straightforward path as parties and the court began to look at a completely different question, whether or not the shareholder plaintiffs could bring the suit at all, or whether instead it was the sort of provision the SEC alone could enforce. That question ended up dominating oral argument, as did the question of whether such a belatedly considered issue could fairly be adjudicated by the court. Turns out, it can't, at least not here, as the court issued its one-sentence dismissal on Tuesday. That, of course, leaves both of the questions here unresolved, and with the lower negligence standard still the law of the Ninth Circuit, a situation where, some worry, shareholder suits can unduly bedevil corporate mergers in Western federal courts for the time being. For more on all of that, I'm very happy to welcome two securities law experts from O'Melveny and Myers onto our show. First, let me welcome in Brittany Rogers, counsel in the firm's LA office. Ms. Rogers, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And Matthew Close, Mr. Close, thanks for being here. It's great to be back. Okay, so uh, Matthew, let me start with you. This is a, a fairly anticlimactic result in a case that you know, I think probably a lot of securities attorneys had been waiting on a, a true answer on the merits in, or, um, or at least, um, you know, something more than this one sentence dismissal as an improvidently granted appeal. Remind me first, though, before we dive into sort of exactly the questions that were at play and the implications that were involved, just what the case is, is all about. So the plaintiffs had alleged the defendant company here, Emulex, had violated 14E of the Securities Exchange Act. And, and that section occurs in the context of tender offers. So remind me, and someone, maybe the generalists in our audience, what we're talking about when we're talking about a tender offer scenario and and what in that context Section 14E proscribes. Uh, Sure. So a tender offer is a um, solicitation by um, a company or a person to purchase substantial percentage of a company's securities. So it's a it's an offer made to security holders who can decide whether or not to tender their securities. It's uh, usually at a, a fixed price that's above uh, the market price to designed to encourage the holders of the securities to tender them in. So um, it's usually conditioned on a certain minimum number of people agreeing to sell their stock. It doesn't have to be stock. It can be other securities. And, you know, it's commonly followed, you know, if the offeror receives more than 50% of the stock in a tender offer, it's often followed by a statutory merger and a second step. So it's, you know, in, in this context in particular, it's a, a, a mechanism used to effectuate a merger in two steps. You tender for 
50% or more of the stock, and, and then when you get enough of the stock, you can effectuate a second-step merger. And that's what happens here. Now, um, Congress pa- passed Section 14E, designed, uh, it created a lot of different rules and uh, around tender offers, but the one that was at issue here is, is it unlawful for anyone to make an untrue statement of material fact or to omit to state a material fact uh, that's necessary in order to make the other statements made not misleading. So there's basically, as is uh, common in other parts of the securities laws, a requirement to avoid untrue statements either affirmatively or by omission. Okay, and so then in the case here, I guess what what were the purportedly false or misleading statements that uh, Emulix had made? So that, so Emulix is the, the target company, right? So its shareholders are the ones who are, you know, fielding offers from the acquiring company to offer up to tender their shares. So what uh, what are they, the plaintiffs here claiming Emulex uh, did in terms of you know, a misrepresentation? Sure. And so this is a very common scenario in public company mergers. Uh, Avago was the uh, acquirer here. And so in 2015, there had been an agreement between Avago and Emulex for Avago to acquire Emulex at $8 a share which was about a 26% premium. And the structure of the deal was a tender offer. And in connection with the tender offer as required by um, the SEC, the Emulex uh, filed a recommendation statement on Schedule 14 D9 that includes the board's recommendation to the stockholders of Emulex that they should tender their shares. And it included nine reasons why the board said that the stockholders should tender. One of those nine reasons was that the Emulex had hired a financial advisor who had given its opinion to the board that this $8 price was fair. And the financial advisor, in reaching this fairness conclusion, had relied on four different valuation methodologies. And all four of those were detailed and explained in the recommendation statement. And as well as in a PowerPoint that the um, financial advisor had given to the Emulex board of directors. So the claim here was that this was not enough, and then in addition to all of this, the recommendation statement had was misleading because it had omitted something else that had been included in that PowerPoint presentation of the Emulex Board of Directors, that at the end of that PowerPoint presentation, the financial advisor had also done something else. It had given a list of the premiums that had been paid in 17 prior transactions in public company acquisitions, the premiums over the market price that had been paid in 17 other prior transactions. And it showed, allegedly, that this 26% premium that Avago was offering you know, wasn't necessarily at, at the top of the range. I think the district court opinion described this premium as being within the normal range but maybe in the bottom half of the list of the 17. So the plaintiff's allegation was that it was misleading by omission for this recommendation statement not to have included details about this premium uh, analysis that was included in the back of this PowerPoint presentation that the financial advisor had given to the Emulex board. Okay, so the the Emulex shareholders are saying, you know, Hey, you told us this was a a good deal, but maybe it turns out it's just like a an okay deal, and so we've been misled based on on that. Is that fair to sum it up? 
I mean, that, that's the crux of it. But, I mean, another way to look at it is you gave us 48 pages of detail and we wanted 49. And, um, you know, I think the defense lawyers around and the uh, public company directors around would say, and if we gave you 49 pages, you'd say we should have given you 50 pages. So, uh, but, yes, the ultimate argument from the plaintiffs is you presented this to us as, as you know, you presented the deal as being too good and didn't didn't give us information that would have that might have suggested the deal wasn't as the the price wasn't as good as as we were led to believe that's the allegation but it's it's based on you know a lot of information was disclosed the claim is we should have gotten just a little bit more so as if, shareholders if that is the allegation uh, Ms. Rogers let me ask you about the the question that the court the multiple courts to now hear this case have uh, been considering the the key question, at least uh, at the outset, as I understand it, is I guess just what level of sort of fault or knowledge needs to be ascribed to the defendant in order to uh, apply to them the 14E liability. So does Emulex, is Emulex liable under that section if they just sort of uh, negligently, you know, by accident that they should have avoided, made that purportedly misleading a description to its shareholders, or do the pl- the plaintiffs have to show uh, scienter, essentially some I guess intention that Emulex meant to mislead them? Is that the core question? That's that's right. So you know the district court dismissed plaintiff's complaint because he failed to plead a strong inference of scienter, and so we are talking about a case that was developed on the pleadings, um, not at the proof stage, and. The Ninth Circuit reversed the district court, saying that, no, uh, the district court should be considering defendant's motion to dismiss under a negligence standard, which, as you noted, is a lower mental state. Sienter requires knowledge or deliberate recklessness, high, high, heightened stage of intent. Negligence is much lower. And so that was the key issue at the district court and at the Ninth Circuit. And as you say, that, that's the Ninth Circuit reversed the trial court's dismissal, let the plaintiff's claim go ahead, said negligence essentially was enough here. But in its opinion, the Ninth Circuit acknowledges that several, five other circuits have addressed this exact same question and, <clears throat> and found differently and put more of a burden on the plaintiffs to show the scienter. So what, on what basis did the Ninth Circuit part ways with the, the five uh, sister circuits? Well, so that had been the law in those circuits for many years. In the second, third, fifth, sixth, eleventh, and according to some of the amici in the case, potentially the eighth, the Ninth Circuit really started its analysis at the beginning, right? It looked to the text of 14E specifically. And when you look at 14E, there are two provisions offset by an or. And so the first provision talks about making an untrue statement of material fact or an omission. And the second provision talks about engaging in fraudulent, deceptive, or manipulative acts or practices. And so the first provision, lacking any qualification for fraudulent, deceptive, or manipulative, facially may read to uh, support a negligence standard. And so the Ninth Circuit then looked to the decisions in the other circuits and suggested that they followed but should not have followed lines of cases interpreting Rule 10b-5. And 10b-5, Rule 10b-5, has been interpreted to have a scienter requirement, 
But the Ninth Circuit determined that that Sienta requirement actually came from Section 10, the statute, not the rule, Rule 10b-5. And so the Ninth Circuit distinguished cases analyzing Rule 10b-5 and then moved on to looking at other analogous provisions like Section 17a of the 33 Act and the legislative history of Section 14e and concluded that no, negligence is sufficient under Section 14e. And, and Ms. Rogers, just to put a slightly finer point on this, so we know there's a lot of other circuits that have held differently, is the Ninth Circuit alone in uh, its holding here? Circuit-wise, it is, sure. There has been one district court, though, within the Ninth Circuit that applied Analex's reasoning uh, in the Northern District of California, but circuit-wise, it's on its own. And then, uh, Mr. Close, let's, uh, let's jump out of the statutory interpretation weeds for a second. Just can I ask you, in terms of uh, practicalities and, and litigation logistics, you know, negligence is a lower standard. So now in Western federal courts, have we seen, since this ruling came down last year, a lot more shareholder plaintiffs trying to bring 14E suits to, that could meet that lower uh, standard? Uh, I, I think that the answer is got to be yes. My only hesitation is we were seeing an incredible increase in velocity of filings in the Ninth Circuit even before Emulex. So I'm a little hesitant to necessarily be so certain as to the actual impact of Emulex itself because the uptick in filings in the Ninth Circuit was apparent even before Emulex. I think it's in part because the law that was established in the Second and Third Circuit that you needed Sienter, right? So you, you had established law already that you had a Sienter requirement in the Second and Third Circuit, whereas it prior to Amulex, it was an open question in the Ninth Circuit. So that said, I think anecdotally, we are seeing, a, a, you know, just tremendous increase in filings on public company mergers in the Ninth Circuit in California, pretty much every deal gets a filing, whether, um, you know, the tender offer um, cases are, are not as frequent as the proxy cases, just the number of deals that are structured that way. But uh, pretty much every public company tender offer case uh, attracts a filing. And if plaintiffs are able to file in the Ninth Circuit, it's certainly their circuit of choice. Okay. So, you know, after the ruling, the Supreme Court pretty quickly grants certain this, you know, new circuit split. You know, one might assume, based on just the number of circuits on one side of this question, to uh, perhaps reverse the Ninth Circuit and, and settle the law in favor of the circuits that have you know, developed it in, in the direction of requiring Sienter. But then the case takes a bit of a left turn. The question of whether or not these shareholder plaintiffs really can bring the case at all, or you know, sort of more specifically whether there's a private right of action under Section 14E. That question gets to center stage here, I think, once the merits briefs start being filed. But uh, Ms. Rogers, you know, initially the the court in the, the cert filings, you know, the question presented was about the knowledge requirement, right? Either negligence or scienter. Is that right? Well, the literal words of the question presented asked whether negligence is sufficient for an inferred private right of action under Section 14E. And so, you know, there's some ambiguity in the, the words of the question, but the bulk of the petition for cert was focused on the intent standard. There were some references in the petition to whether a private right of action should exist, and it was raised uh, in 
a request for rehearing at the Ninth Circuit, at least somewhat raised. And so there were sort of discussions about this percolating, but it was not certainly front and center. And given the circuit split, it did seem fairly straightforward uh, what was going to be, you know, mainly argued here. The Chamber of Commerce, though, submitted an amicus brief in favor of CERT, uh, so at the CERT petition phase, and that brief really laser-focused on this specific issue of whether an implied right of action under 14E is appropriate and, you know, suggested that the court say that it is not and went through the court's history on these various subjects and really advocated for that. So that's when things sort of started turning a bit and then you see in the merits petition, or I'm sorry, in the merits brief, a uh, much more full-throated discussion about whether a private right of action exists under 14E. Okay, and just in terms of how the Supreme Court has treated that question, I, I take it it must have, um, as yet not have spoken to whether there's a private right of action to this specific securities law section, but I'm sure in other areas of the law, it, it has um, dealt with the question. And in a column that you t- contributed to our, our newspaper, you both uh, referenced sort of the evolving jurisprudence in the Supreme Court around private rights of action. Uh, Ms. Rogers, you know, could you just uh, give me a, a bit of a distillation of that uh, jurisprudence to this point? Sure. So at, at a very high level, I mean, this is a complicated area of law, and um, practitioners would be probably up in arms if I'm trying to summarize it in, in a few seconds. But as a, as a basic matter, Before 1975, if Congress enacted a statute for the benefit of a class, a specific class, courts often recognized a remedy for members of that class, a private right of action for members of that class. And so it was much more common and much more liberally done. In 1975, the Supreme Court came out with a decision in Court v. Ash, where it moved away from the looser approach to implied private rights, and started focusing on statutory construction, legislative history, and congressional intent. And that approach developed and really became more restrictive over the years. And the fundamental inquiry is, did Congress, a body that knows exactly how to lay out a right of action expressly, intend to create an implied right of action when it passed whatever provision is being challenged. So that's resulted in a bit of a fractured jurisprudence where you have this pre and post body of law. And in the modern period, the Supreme Court has often declined to create inferred private rights of action to the extent they were not established before And it's often declined to extend previously inferred rights of action beyond where they already reach. Could I just ask you, in terms of maybe what drives the modern courts worry about being too liberal with implying private rights of action? I guess what are, maybe sort of just on the policy side, what's the worry of creating these rights? It it would seem like more enforcement of laws on the books is is a good thing. What what uh, would worry the court about that? It's really rooted in separation of powers. Um, it's the legislature's function to 
set out the laws and who can enforce them. Um, and, and courts are often very reluctant to essentially legislate. Um, and by creating private rights of action, some jurists feel like they're engaging in legislation that is beyond the auspices of the judiciary branch. Okay. Um, and then, Ms. Rogers, just to focus in on how private rights of action questions have been dealt with maybe in the securities context specifically. I know in reading some of the briefs that uh, another you know, very familiar securities law, Section 10b-5, um, does entail a private right of action. I think the Supreme Court has held that. So is there sort of a mixed bag in terms of whether there's these rights in securities regulation and, and laws? There really is, and it is in part informed by the pre and post-1975 split that I mentioned earlier. So in 1964, um, the Supreme Court found an implied right, private right of action for Section 14A, which applies to proxy solicitations. And, you know, it's Section 14A is just a few above Section 14E. And so you have that 1964 case, Borak, that Chief Justice Roberts, at least, at the at oral argument, specifically said it, it would not be decided the same way today, and that's in various majority opinions throughout um, the last 10 years. But so you have that in 1964. And then 1976, you have 10B having an implied right of action in a case called Ernst & Ernst. Um, In 1977, uh, the Supreme Court decided no implied right of action for defendant defeated tender offerers under Section 14E. But the court specifically said it was not taking a position on the question in Amulex, which is whether shareholders can have a private right of action under 14E. And then also important is in 1979, the Supreme Court found no private right of action under Section 17A um, of the 33 Act. So this this has come up and the analysis has evolved with the court's jurisprudence. It certainly sounds like a you know a question that merits maybe some more uh, definite resolution and, and perhaps the court's attention. But that obviously didn't mean the court was going to deal with it in this case because, Mr. Close, you got a sense from the oral argument that clearly the court was bothered that this you know issue that was only sort of secondarily referenced in earlier briefing and in the cert petition suddenly had sort of taken center stage here. Um, describe to me what the nature of the justice's concern over that question is, and, and did it, you know, um, factor in most of the time in oral argument? Did the court even really get to the original question presented, the, the knowledge requirement? So uh, I would, uh, a lot of the early part of oral argument was focused on was the question regarding uh, the existence of a private right of action properly preserved and properly presented. That was a, you know, uh, particularly the Democratic appointed justices certainly um, leaned in hard on the petitioner on that question. You know, I think you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's hard to get into the, the head of what, the, what what's really going on and what the, what the real chess game is there. Um, but this is clearly a legitimate question and issue. I mean, the court Look, stepping back and even moving away from this case, the Supreme Court controls its own docket. The certiorari process is important to the court. Court controls the cases it grants on. The questions presented are important. It wants 
It has an institute. It's institutionally important to the court that it define the questions and the questions it grants on be honored and respected. Right. So whatever the issue is, there's some element of a, you know institutional importance to maintaining you know some um, sanctity around questions presented. But as as Brittany pointed out earlier. You know the this the question of what what was the inferred private what was the scope of any inferred private right of action was you know feathered into this question presented. I think there are uh, you know whether it was properly socialized at the lower court level um, I think was uh, troubling to some of the court members. The private right of action uh, the, the argument I would say was dominated by two issues: was the issue properly preserved and properly presented? And there was also ample discussion of the, the, the merits question related to is there or is there not a private right of action. Um, that was given uh, substantial airing at the oral argument. What received very little attention, however, was the question as to the requisite state of mind, negligence versus scienter. It did come up. Um, there were some questions throughout the hearing on uh, the oral argument on that. But even when it was discussed, it often came back to the private right of action question. There was a theme that was raised by several justices who questioned whether lower courts were imposing the scienter requirement as a way of regulating or counterbalancing the implied private right of action. So basically, you know, are, are courts reaching to, to, to ramp up the scienter element, the state of mind element, as a gatekeeping function to prevent a flood of these lawsuits resulting from an implied private right of action. So, um, you know, I don't know that there's any empirical way to test this, but even when there was a, some of these questions and discussions about, you know, is there really a um, intent element here? It, it, a lot of times, the, some of the, uh, in, uh, several times, those questions came back to the, you know, are people reaching to put an intent element here because they're functionally very concerned about the risks of strike suits and proliferation of private class actions uh, uh, resulting from an implied private right of action. Okay, Mr. Closey, if as it turns out, and I suppose maybe it's hard to foresee the way this appeals course went and the focus, how it ended up being on just the private right of action question and, you know, whether or not that that had been properly aired below. I guess, you know, obviously Emulex is endowed with a, a brilliant team of appellate attorneys, so I'm sure it occurred to them that uh, that this is an issue as part of the appeal. You know, why perhaps did they decide not to focus on that issue below is the idea that the real issue that they wanted resolution on is that uh scienter question and so the focus just was was on that is there you know any thought that perhaps you know looking back then they, they might have changed the strategies given the opportunity again to go ahead and 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 argue and brief that question more fully earlier on well, uh, look, uh, hindsight can always appear to be 2020, but I think even playing Monday morning quarterback here, it, it's pretty hard to, you know, I think it, to honestly um, second guess this. So, look, at the trial court level, I mean, 
a couple things. You, even if you read this Ninth Circuit decision, they are skeptical of the merits of this claim. Even though the Ninth Circuit reverses and directs the district court to reconsider this on a negligence standard, even the Ninth Circuit, in, in doing so, expresses some doubt as to whether this alleged omission that I described at the top could possibly be material. So I think, you know, Emulex's counsel, you know, has a, you know, a strong motion to dismiss and they prevail on it under, you know, arguing, you know, a traditional and, and the district court is bound by the existing Ninth Circuit precedent, which has recognized the implied private right of action. So they went in the district court playing a traditional strong hand. They go up to the Ninth Circuit. They've got five others. You know, the Ninth Circuit hasn't ruled on the, the intent standard, but they make you know, the, the, you know, they're holding a pretty strong hand. They make, you know, they, they cite all the, they've got five circuits going one way. They make all the, the, those arguments. And then the Ninth Circuit breaks the other way. I think then the question is, you know, how, what, should they at that point have moved, should they at that point have uh, on rehearing have pushed uh, and maybe rehearing on Bonk pushed this private right of action issue much more strongly, you know, sitting here today, <laughs> knowing everything we know today, I guess it probably, uh, you know, looks that way now. But at the time, you know, you now have a 5-1 circuit split. It's a ninth circuit breaking from five other circuits in a way that no one has done in, you know, in, in decades on this issue. It's a clean circuit split. You know, I don't think you can really second guess the judgments that were made at that time to sort of keep it as a clean 5-1 circuit split and, you know, take the issue uh, forward on that basis. You know, so I think it's, you know, I think what, what the wild card, I think, is the way some of the amicus broke out um, and the way the case sort of developed in the Supreme Court with the private right of action really blowing up as the key issue. And, you know, we haven't really talked about it, but you have, at the Supreme Court level, you have the, you know, United States you know, Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice coming in and saying it should be a negligence standard in the statute. And so that really complicated where Emulex stood there, because now, um, although you have five circuits saying it's an intent standard, uh, a scienter standard, you have the federal government, you know, the SEC saying it's really a negligence standard. So, you know, I think if they had right. to do it all over again... They probably, I'm sorry, five. Um, I think if, the, if they had to do it all over again, they probably at the rehearing stage in the Ninth Circuit would have uh, pushed harder on the private right of action. But at the time, it's it's hard to question the judgment, I think. And, and one thing to add about the government's brief is that it did argue for a negligent standard, but it argued for no private right of action, right? So the government argued that this is a government enforcement provision and that the government should be subjected to a negligence standard. Um, it did not sort of hedged on, it hedged on what, what the standard should be if there is a private right of action. Right, and I think, um, so we, this came up a bit earlier, there perhaps is, is some consideration in the court that there should be a relation, I guess, between who can bring a suit and what standard they need to meet. So if maybe the government is bringing it, those suits would be brought obviously by just one party, perhaps less Often there's less of a worry about a flood of suits. Then you could have a lower negligence standard. But if there are private, is there if there is a private right of action, then 
you might want to have a higher burden for those plaintiffs to meet. So is that part of maybe the government's briefing there, Ms. Rogers? As you said, they suggested negligence, but that only the government could bring the suit. So the the government didn't reach, you know, what the standards should be if there's a private right of action. But this theme kept coming up um, in argument. And really the way to look at it is Section 10b-5 is enforceable by private litigants. They can bring their their claims under Section 10b-5, but they have to plead and prove scienter. Section 17a has no private right of action. It is just for the government, and they're subjected to a negligence standard. And the language of those two provisions is very similar to what you're looking at in 14e. And so that's sort of why I think the two issues seem quite married in the discussion, because, you know, you've got language that's been interpreted differently, and it's hard to decouple the standard and who can enforce it when the Supreme Court has often articulated its concern about these strike suits that Matt mentioned. Okay, just a couple of last ones. So now a week after the arguments are made, we get this dismissal as a, an appeal improvidently granted or a, a, a writ uh, improvidently granted. A couple of questions, Ms. Rogers. First, you know, how rare are these types of rulings? Clearly, the, the court took this case wanting to, uh, to render some sort of decision on it. Now they're going to hold their powder for another day. And, and then, you know, where does the, uh, the ruling lead this particular case? Is it now um, off everyone's docket? Does the Ninth Circuit hear the private right of action question? Where, where are we with this case? Right. So the, the acronym for a dismissal as improvidently granted is a DIG. And DIGs really are not very common. Historically, there's data you know, that over the last, say, 50, 60 years, the average is two to three per term, one to three per term. More recently and anecdotally, it's typically one or two, but that also corresponds likely to the fact that there are fewer cases um, being accepted each term. It often arises when there's a vehicle problem that surfaces in the merits briefing, like when a case doesn't end up testing a question presented. Here, however, the the case sort of, it's hard to argue that it doesn't test the question presented. Um, There are there's speculation about why the Supreme Court might have done this, but obviously we don't know because we have just the one-line order. And it it leaves the case with the Ninth Circuit's ruling intact. And so you have a negligence standard for 14E cases uh, in the Ninth Circuit. But, you know, there, as I mentioned before, there was one district court in the Northern District of California that has applied the standard, at least, requiring a strong inference of negligence, which is parallel to in 10b-5 cases when you need a strong inference of scienter uh, in a complaint. So it, it appears that the analysis will be similar, just with a different mens rea. Okay, Mr. Close, let me give you the, the last one. So if the, you know, the law stands as it is now for the, the time being, but we remain in a situation where there's a, a deep circuit split or an unbalanced circuit split. Do you expect this question to get back to the Supreme Court pretty soon? And in the meanwhile, um, you know, are, do you expect to see a continuation of um, a good amount of challenges to mergers based on 14E in um, the district courts out here? 
Uh, yes and yes. Uh, there are s- several cases that anecdotally that have been stayed pending the MLS decision. I think the defense bar in particular will be trying to get a case properly presented and well positioned back up to the court. You know, and I think frankly, many of the judges in the Ninth Circuit would are amenable to trying to facilitate that. I mean, it's I don't know anyone that's particularly well served by having this ambiguity and uncertainty in the law. So I, I, I expect the plaintiff's bar will continue to file at the high rate that they've been filing, and I, I see no reason for them to change tactics. I expect them to continue to file uh, disproportionately in the Ninth Circuit. I mean, we have a, a large body of public companies out here, Silicon Valley. Um, so there's a lot of companies based out here. There's a lot of activity out here. The 34 Act has a very, very generous venue provision. So I don't expect any changes to what we've seen in the last few years. And if anything, I expect uh, continued high rate of filings. And I do expect a strong effort by uh, the defense bar to properly position the case to get back to the Supreme Court. And it's hard for me to think of any rationale for why the justices or really any really why the judiciary would want to keep this state of law, right? I mean, you have a, a clear circuit split on the state of mind. Uh, you have, based on the oral argument, there's substantial doubt as to the viability of the private right of action once the proper vehicle is presented. And, you know, this, you know, this relates to sort of a, a recurring issue, right? I mean, tender offers are part of commerce and, and the business of this country and the, um, structure of our capital markets. There are many of them every year. It's an important part of our economy and how our securities uh, and and markets work. uh, There's really no good reason. In fact, it's really bad policy and bad uh, for business to sort of leave the law in this state. So I I think, uh, you know, whatever whatever side of the aisle you're on or whatever side of the V you're on, I, I think it's really hard to justify leaving the state of law in in the current position over the long haul. Well, we'll stay tuned for um, that resolution. That sounds like it could be in the upcoming term, perhaps. But for now, uh, Matthew Close and Brittany Rogers from O'Melveny and Myers. Thanks to both of you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That's our program for April 26, 2019. Thanks once more to all of my guests, Ron Holland from McDermott, Will, and Emery, and Matthew Close and Bridget Rogers from O'Melveny and Myers. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez, and thank you for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget a couple of things. One, that CLE credit is available for listeners of this podcast. It's easy to find. Just go to dailyjournal.com, find this podcast. There should be a link to a short true-false test, which once you have completed and tendered the competitive fee entitles you to one hour of California CLE credit. Also, don't forget to look for us on the various podcast streaming avenues through which we should now be available. Just search Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal, and both should bring you to our show. Finding us there and subscribing, liking, rating, reviewing us is all great as it helps other folks find the show and also lets us know what we could be doing better. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.